0: And that we need some bravery we need compassion um it, it, the next 10 years are going to be difficult and if we judge it purely on you know the old metrics we will have missed a, a great opportunity
1: the world has never been changing more rapidly dislocating the ways we work learn and live on the learning future podcast We discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hello, and welcome to the Learning Future Podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today it's my delight to be joined by David Price. David Price, OBE, is an expert in organizational learning for our complex future. He writes, talks, trains, and advises around the world on some of the biggest challenges facing business, education, and society. Solving the problems of employee, student, and civic disengagement, maximizing our potential to be creative, innovative, and fulfilled citizens, and understanding the global shift towards open organizations and systems of learning. His first book, Open, How Will Work, Live, and Learn in the Future, has been an Amazon bestseller since its publication, with 40,000 sold copies. Goodreaders voted at the most influential book on education in 2016, and his recently published new book is The Power of Us, How We Connect, Act, and Innovate. The three years of research writing involved interviews with leaders of organizations across the United Kingdom, the USA, Cambodia, Australia, and Malaysia. And in 2009, David was awarded the OBE by Her Majesty the Queen for services to education. David, thank you for joining us for this conversation.
0: It's great to be here.
1: Let's start with the first question. Uh as someone that's spent your life in learning, I'm curious about this. What's something you've learned recently?
0: Yeah, I guess um whether it, it I learned it from scratch or whether it was just a realization, but I was speaking at a conference last week, it was the first one since lockdown started. Mm. Um and I was I just happened to be sitting in another session and the person who was leading the session asked how many people were currently not in the office. It was a conference of uh, internal communicators. Um, And every hand went up, maybe a couple. Then someone said, um, how many of you would prefer to be in the office? And virtually no hands went up. And it struck me that this notion of the hybrid workplace is going to last much longer than the pandemic you know i think Mm. i think it could be a permanent shift and i think that for people like ourselves look at that 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 does have implications because as much as i love being in spaces with people uh i i have to recognize that what we are doing now is is know it's it's it it has already become the standard and i think people have seen it as a it's just a phase that we will go through and eventually the zoom fatigue will end well Mm. it 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 won't i think um you know i i do think there will be times when some businesses will have to say we need people in the office um i interviewed a ceo from a creative ad agency and he said you know you can't really do ideation sessions over zoom you, you've got to have people in the room so I think there are some mm. areas of, um, of work where that that would be uh, a necessity but I think the reality has been um, that leaders know that they, 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 they're not really in charge anymore they people are and that, that's that's been a huge shift and I don't it's fully dawned on some leaders
1: yeah I'm that's that's a great Great place to launch off from. I mean, this idea of agency choice, hybridization, you know, the Scott Galloway concept of, you know, the crisis has done many things, but more than anything, it's been an accelerant. It's added this kind of fuel, um, you know, and catalyzed Brilliant. decades of change in weeks, in some cases, in some industries. So take us, and I mean, you're very much a deep generalist in my, in my eyes, David. So take us into some of the big ideas, plural, that you've really been exploring through your work, be it open and the idea of, you know, the emerging future of workplaces and of schools uh, or or also into the power of us. You know, how do we, right at this moment, realise that we're all in this together and then innovate forward?
0: Well, it's, yeah, I suppose I'm at that point in my life where, you know, I should have retired, but uh, I'm never going to. But, But you do tend to look back and think, well, how did I get here? How did I get to this point? Mm. Um, because like everyone else during the, the pandemic, you know, you go through those periods of introspection, and you think, what do I want to do now, you know, uh, with whatever years are, are, are left remaining. And, mm. as as you know, um, my, my heart's always been in education, it's where I spent most of my working life. But When I was doing the research for Open, I I was very clear about the fact that uh, for me, it didn't matter whether learning was taking place in an office, in a training room, in a cooperative, or in a school or college. The the issues were the same. Um, And a number of people said, you know, you're nuts. You you need to either write a book about education or you need to write a book about learning in the workplace, but you you can't combine them. And I did. Um, And I for me that um, it opened up a whole other world and and Mm -hmm. put me in contact with all sorts of people that I probably would never have met had I just stayed in education. Now, does this mean that I'm going to stop working with teachers? Absolutely not. But I do think that it it benefits me enormously to, as as you describe me as as a deep generalist, that's a pretty good um, description. I think it, you know my natural curiosity has taken me into all kinds of areas mm. and I, at some point somebody will have to tell me how to write a book because I I had no idea what I was doing when I wrote open and I thought after that you know it was a bit like when I used to be in a band and you'd, you'd put the first album out and then you think oh what are we going to do with the second album and people are saying so what are you working on now for your next book and I, the, the truth was I had no idea but there was just Something in hindsight, it's easy to see the connections because open yeah. was about how knowledge is being shared. It was inevitable that, you know, six years later, we were going to have gone to the next stage. I just didn't realize at the time, which is what do you do with that knowledge? But I started to see groups of people who, who would by no means be classed as experts, um, but they started to to make things and to share things. Um and that that whole artisanal economy was was really just starting to happen now the pandemic has accelerated that massively thank goodness i'd i'd already kind of written most of the book when the pandemic happened because it it nearly mm. it underlined some of the the theories that i was advocating which was you know people there there is a wave of mass ingenuity which is taking place it was yeah. happening anyway before the pandemic yeah previously the two things that used to stop people from from producing and making things was um the access to the means of production well you know laser uh, 3d laser printers are what a 400 So that's no longer a problem. And then access to capital. And you've now got peer-to-peer lending services. So that's no longer the kind of problem. What I was speculating in the book before the pandemic hit was if if we went from sharing what we knew to share what we own to now sharing what we make, is there a further step, which is sharing what we make at scale? Because Mm. what I saw was a bunch of hobbyists who largely were, were happy to to just keep it within their circle but with the pandemic there was a new sense of urgency and you know in this country we had a thousand Facebook self-help groups sprung up within two weeks of lockdown Mm. you had kids in school making 3D face shields you had people making um, uh, scrubs for for hospital workers when when our government was signally failing we'd ordered 750 million dollars worth of uh, of out-of-date PPE from Turkey. It was 10 years out of date, completely unusable. So the phrase I use in the book is Mm. communities are outperforming bureaucracies. And I really believe that's true. So the the question is, what do we do with that as individuals and as as organizations?
1: Wow. Well, let's Let's take it at the organizational level first and then go backwards because I'm, I'm fascinated as you would not be surprised by concepts like New Power by Jeremy Hammonds and Henry Timms, for example, you know, by Frederic Laloux, you know, reinventing organizations and the level of consciousness that exists, And you know, how do we move towards holocracy and these ideas of the ecology as the major driving metaphor as opposed to the mechanisms or the hierarchical pieces and you write about this in the book. So... What, what is it about organizations that, you know, the community outperforms the bureaucracy also might outperform hierarchies, you know, so take us into that world a little bit more. What what do yeah. you see is not just the emerging future, but perhaps the preferred future for the way that organizations, including schools are yeah. structured and function?
0: Yeah, and I, and I think perhaps education is one of the areas that is is maybe not responding in the way, well, certainly from, from from the perspective of the UK, in the way that one would hope, um, mm-hmm. I think the, those drastic changes. In, and for me, the driver behind all of this is the idea of self determination. That you know, we want to have more control. I think self determination is what's driven things like you know the Scottish push for independence, the 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 breakup of of, of large states, but it's also applies to our working environment it applies to how we choose to learn um, and and so i think organizations have got to recognize that you can no longer just tell people what to do um, and that's what i mean about you're, you're not in charge anymore as a leader your people are because the, and now it's particularly true um because we've got this this massive labor shortage in in well, in all areas. And so the question is, you know, if you're, if you're going to try and get good people to come and work for you, then it's no longer enough to just say, we'll pay you a ton of money. You've you've got to give them more work-life balance. And fortunately, you know, one of the things about the pandemic, we we did a, um, a survey of uh, CEOs' attitudes and, and what they'd learned. And, and the thing that was coming out over and over again was, um, the idea of well-being and mental health, and and just reconnecting uh, people, mm. and I think that's what that's the challenge now for organisation. That's that's on one level, if you like, that's within your organisation. How do you get the best out of people? For years, Luca, like you, I was doing you know innovation, creativity workshops because mm. somebody would bring you in and say, you know, can you sprinkle a bit of fairy dust on these people and make them more creative? I, I eventually I realized that that wasn't the issue. People aren't just naturally creative. If they're working in a culture which prevents yeah. that, then it doesn't matter how many workshops you attend, it, you're, you're not going to feel that you want to be creative or, or innovative. So I I think organizations have really got to take culture seriously now and making sure that they've, they've got the right kind of culture. On the other side of it is the, these other people who both buy their products but also make their own or they hack the products that belong to these companies. And for too long, I think companies have just ignored them. And, you know, you've ended up in a situation where, you know, a 17-year-old kid has created the COVID tracking website in yes, the US that's right. that's and right. when the government failed yeah. to do so. But but what's interesting, of course, given, given our work is that... He was unable, he thought he'd be unable to get into college because his grade point average was so low. It was 1.7, I think. And I, I kept in touch with Abby Schiffman, um, who, and, you know, he won the Webby Person of the Year. It's like the Oscars, if you're a yeah, yes, you and, and I just said to him, you don't want to be in a college that doesn't recognize what you've done outside of school. Fortunately, Harvard took him, so he's, he's happy. Mm. But what I thought was interesting was that he was offered, I think it was $80 million to, to sell that website for commercial purposes. And he said, no, because you'll fill it up with ads. And it, this is too important. And I think our young people wow. are, are driven by other forces than perhaps my generation was. Um, and so that's, that's a lot of learning to take on board. Plus, it seems to me, CEOs have also now got the whole phenomenon of the social movement, the rise in social movements. Of course, we've always had social movements, we've just not had as many, mm-hmm. nor have they been as successful because they're now networked, you know, the two largest public demonstrations the world has ever seen were organized by a bunch of school kids. How does mm-hmm. that happen? And yet we 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 can't trust kids. To, to help us redesign the curriculum. They, they can organise, you know, Greta Thunberg's crew can organise these incredible marches. So yeah. it, it just seems to me we, we've got to recognise at all levels of society that self-determination or autonomy is how you mm. get the best out of people.
1: That's fantastic, David. And I think it really speaks to uh, this, well, what we're supposedly seeing now, this great resignation which, of course, mm-hmm. if, if you're in the company space, it's called the great attrition. Yeah. The great resignation because you're losing stuff. And so this piece on culture, I mean, I think you put it so beautifully. It, you can have every strategy in the world. You can have all the kind of innovation, you know, processes, but unless it's supported in the culture. So my next question to you is really one on leadership before we kind of delve into the individual level. Well, it is the individual level in some ways. How, how do leaders... Enable the kind of evolution or even transcendence, perhaps, of the on that cultural journey of their organisations. How do you actually move from, you know, command and control, hierarchical mm-hmm. to organic swarm holocracy? I mean, how how does that journey take place? What what words would you share for leaders that are on this journey right now? You know, the you know self you know motivation design, for example, self determination, you know, agency, belonging, engagement you know, all these kind of pieces that Dan Pink spoke about, you know, a while ago, Mm -hmm. basically rebranding self-determination theory. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what's what's the
0: path forward? What have you seen across your work? Well, I I think um, it's it's been no coincidence to me that the organizations that responded with the greatest agility during the pandemic and were able to just turn on a sixpence to to shift what they were making, you know, whether that was you know, stuff which was related to the pandemic or whether it was just that they, they found a different way to work. But they were, the, they were the leaders who who had a greater sense of this notion of servant leadership. I, I, I don't think that really covers it, that that phrase. But but it, it starts to get to the heart of it. And I think leaders will have no choice soon that if if they want to the survive as business. I'll give you an example. Um, Friend of my friend of mine, his wife worked in a bank. I won't I won't name the bank, but it's it's a it's a very large bank, and they made a couple of appointments. They were executives, and and they did it during lockdown, so they weren't able to actually meet them. The the, the whole thing was wow. done uh, remotely. Uh, but these were not you know office juniors; these were senior roles. And after the first day, both of these executives resigned, and. Wow. They said, "Well, wh- what did we do wrong? It's only day one." And they said, "Well, nothing much, really. But you know, we don't we don't really um, believe in your values too much. And there's there's plenty of other places that'll have us. So we're, we're wow. off." Bye. Uh, now that was a shock to the system, and mm. the the resignation wave is real. It's it's been running in the U.S. at four million resignations a month since April. So that's what 25 million resignations, that's a huge number. Mm-hmm. In the UK, they did a study over the summer, 75% of all adults in the UK were either thinking of moving house, oh um, leaving the partner, or quitting the job. So these are colossal numbers that we've we've just never experienced before. So it, to a certain extent, there'll be kind of an attrition of the leadership. But I do think that for the others and, and intentionality is key here. You know, I, I, I've I worked with a CEO recently. He actually he read the book and he rang me up one day and he was, I could see he was at his wits end and he just said, I'm, you know, I don't think I'm a bad person, but I can't get people on my side. I, they, they don't seem to want to work uh, with, with any great enthusiasm. What they do is actually a, a, an artisanal craft, beautiful. They make beautiful things and and we worked together and you know he had to he had to face really difficult realizations and he had to be brave he 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 wasn't trusting them he had locks on the cupboards where the tools were kept he um was making people you know clock in and clock out all of the things that signal an absence of trust mm. um and 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 he he took a conscious decision that things would have to change and he would have to change and it's fantastic to see the change in him. We've developed this cultural audit process and, and his organization has been one of our beta testers. And right. they've come out with some of the highest scores. And, and it's really great to see. But not only are there people happier, he's happier, but they've got full order books now until the end of 2023. So, you know, it doesn't come at the expense of success. It's, I think it's a prerequisite. Oh, that's. Sorry, I just want to say one other thing. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. It's fresh in my mind. Part of that has been th- that I, I, I. This talk I gave last week. I, I was urging these people in internal comms to to think how they could create a social movement within their own workplace. Hmm. And I said. Think about how Black Lives Matter got their message across. Think about how people like Nike were, were were so keen to work with them. But also think about what happens when when you get that wrong. And some of the organisations that have got that wrong, it's been absolutely disastrous. Brewdog would be one of them um, because they were building a social movement. You know, I was one of 200,000 equity points. Well, I still am, but. Brewdog is a craft brewery for those who don't know in, in, in Scotland. They've now got a brewery in Brisbane. And um and, and there was a big scandal because it turned out that the, the leader, James Watt, who I interviewed for the book, was taken by surprise because he got the thing that, you know, it strikes fear into the hearts of CEOs everywhere. An open letter from disgruntled employees. Mm-hmm. And it was quite damning. You know, it described this wow. toxic culture, misogyny. And I, you know it' still I st- still don't think they've repaired that, that damage. Um, but that came about, it seemed to me because he thought he knew what the culture was. He, it was he describes himself as the captain of the ship. Well, you know that's that's still part of that ego driven and he's yes. that curious mix of he's trying to save the planet, you know the, the carbon negative as an organization. He's doing a lot of the right things. But he was telling me how great their culture was. And yet, all the while, he wasn't aware that this was going on. So, those kinds of slaps in the face for CEOs are happening on a daily basis. I had another guy that I spoke to, CEO, and I interviewed him and I said, Would you imagine 10 years ago that you would need to have a position on, say, transgender rights? And he laughed and he said, Well, of course not. He said, But more than that, he said, "If anybody had asked me, I'd have said it's none of my business. But it, it's everybody's business now, mm-hmm. and and people will only go and work for you as a leader if they know what you stand for. And and so that division between you know the corporate world and the political world it's kind of crumbling.
1: That's that's fascinating, David. I." the the piece you talked about social movements actually resonates really well with a former guest, Santiago Gallardo Rincon. He talked about education as a social movement. And how do you think about change in that in that in those terms, almost in the Paulo Freire type of approach. But I'm really interested in well as well in terms of, you know, this idea of we're all I think it's um, Gandhi of course, but you know, we're all out there trying to change the world, but we must start by changing ourselves. And I think this is separation that we have between what we do outside and inside. You know our internal worlds our ability to emotionally regulate you know a lot of my work is around social and emotional constructs and dimensions how we elevate those alongside the academics you know as the future of work future of learning you know i'd love i'd love your reflections on how do we take this into a learning organization as well i mean we could make the claim that every company now is a learning organization in terms of a, a school you know how do we restructure like where are you seeing the emergent mainstream of education, um, uh, because K to 12, you know, there are a, a million pundits out there that would say education is broken. Now, I don't think that necessarily solves anything. Um, so yeah, where do you, what's your reflections on that? Yeah,
0: uh, well, wow. There's so much in what you've said there. Um, because what came to mind as you were describing that, um, dislocations and the, the internal and the external we've we've just been um working on a series we being the, the power of us agency this the six of us and, and and one of the people that i'm co-writing um a toolkit based upon the book because people right. kept saying me, you know this is great but how, how do i do this practically Give us the steps, Yeah. so we started looking at you know what are the kinds of processes and activities that that we should we need to put in this toolkit and uh, one of our group is a is a is a, an executive coach, and there were so many activities that he was suggesting that I found myself one day saying, "Oh, this is a bit hippy dippy, isn't it?" You know, and then I realised <laughs> the more we got into it, that actually, as as he as as we say in the toolkit, before there is you, there is us, and 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 putting yourself out of that picture. Uh, to, to, to be to be saying how 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 can I be my authentic self in work, and mm-hmm. and and is that going to be enough for people? Um, in my view, it's always enough because if you if you're not your authentic self, they're going to see through you anyway. Yeah. So I think that that goes to um, I guess uh, education in in insofar as the 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 schools that I are most heartened by and, and feel, yeah, it's not, it's not completely broken, the system. But they're, they're, they're ones who are having, they're having to work within the system, but they don't make that stop them doing the things that they, they came into the job for. So XP mm-hmm. School in Doncaster is, is, is a case in point. A lot of these new schools are, are run by tech startup people. And I think they bring a lot of that mentality, including holacracy. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, when you think about it, schools are some of the most hierarchical places in the world. Absolutely. So when Gwyn, who set up, when Appari, set up um, XP, he just said, you know, we have we have total control of our budgets. We can do what we like. The timetable is not something that's handed down to us. We create our own. So they took a number of decisions, like they would be, I think they've got maybe three layers of, of management within within that school. They've never paid for uh, an hour of cover. Um,
1: mm. um, yes. Because they just saying, Emergency teaching,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, they say, we can use that money on, on stuff with the kids. And so they, they, they cover for one another. But, but the, the, the most striking signal that it sends out is they changed their school model to one. And I, I love this. And when you walk into the school, you see this thing in big letters, above all compassion. And, mm. and I think that's so great. You know, we've got so many schools. That put out these ridiculous Ofsted banners. You know, we're an outstanding school, or we're a good school. You never see one saying we're one in <laughs> we're a school in special measures. They, they <laughs> kind of bury that, but but yeah. but the, the the Ofsted label becomes this yoke around people's neck, and actually, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything to parents. It shouldn't, but but sadly, it does but you know as long as your kids been looked after with love and care and attention then that seems to me to be a big thing and yes of course they've got to be learning but if, if, if what, what xp says we we have to learn purposefully we have to we have to do things that matter in the world you know and it's based upon ron berger's expeditionary learning model yeah. And they're just wonderful balances, I think, of, of the necessary within the structure. Until we can change the structure, which is, yeah. you know, I think what Learning uh, Creates is trying to do in Australia, and um, things like the, the Mastery Transcript Initiative are trying to do in the US. Until we can change that structure, we've got to live with it. But I believe it calls now, particularly coming out of lockdown, when there just seems to be this desire to, oh, let's just go back to normal. Let's just go back to how it used to be. I think it calls for courage from leaders who are going to say, no, we're not. You know, Rahm Emanuel is is always quoted with that famous line that he said after the financial crash when he was uh, the uh, Treasury Secretary of State for Obama. And he said, never let a good crisis go to waste. But what he also said was, because it allows us to do things we never thought we could do before. That's mm. the bit that never gets quoted, yes. and that, to me, is is what has happened right. in this pandemic with schools. They never thought they could make that switch to hybrid learning so quickly. But but there was lots of other things that happened, and and I think what I see in 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 this country, and I have seen in other countries is that there's almost a sense of, oh, when we get the old framework back in and when we're all sitting these kids down for, you know, three-hour exams, then it'll everything will be back to how it used to be. Well, how it used to be wasn't great for the majority of kids. So why, why are we aspiring to do that? David,
1: fan- fantastic pieces to pick up there as well. Uh, I'd, I'd love your commentary on kind of the the idea of meritocracy or maybe the idea that we've internalized individualism to such an extent that we almost have to unlearn that and come back to this collective i think first nations particularly here in australia can teach us a lot about this about this is the power of us you know i am because we are ubuntu you know the 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 african you know uh concept so yeah there's that piece of you know not not just self-actualization and growth mindset but self-transcendence and Compassion mindset. If we take the, experience. because compassion forces us to think about us, that we are in this together. What's your, yeah, what's your reflection on, on how we overcome the fact that we have schools that are still articulating a type of success, that in I think in our collective view, um, certainly in mine is no longer fit for purpose. And, you know, we've had Valerie Hannon on this podcast previously as well, a colleague of yours. And again, she's like, what is the school for? It's a pretty good question to ask, particularly post a crisis that expands the Overton window of what is conceived as possible to achieve.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it, I think it's really, um, it's a really pivotal moment. Uh, I. I could probably best describe it by saying, I was doing a consultancy with a school in Australia. I won't say who they are, but but they're a very very high performing school, and they tried to introduce uh, an experiment of um, no grades, just verbal feedback, and it was the parents who said, "No, we can't have that," mm. uh, you know. And they and when they asked why, the parents said, "Because this this." Uh, that if, if for for there to be winners, they have to be losers. You know, I found that an incredibly right. dispiriting thing to say. And contrast that with the expeditionary learning schools that we just mentioned, where they say to all their kids on the first day they turn up at school, your job is not to get into college. Your job is to get everybody in this room into college. Uh-huh. And that's a different way of flipping that model. The reality is, it seems to me, in purely, you know, output terms, these are successful schools and compassionate schools. So it isn't an either-or. And I think that we we allow ourselves to be to be tricked into that.
1: Mm. But
0: but what does it mean? I think it's much bigger, you know, than than schools and education. It's a societal thing. And we we weren't all in this together during the pandemic. And we might have said that, you know, what 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 it, where I think it was striking, and I, I said this last week when I gave a presentation, is even the Second World War. There were some parts of the world that it didn't really affect. But, you know, with the exception of a couple of tiny Pacific islands, everyone in the world has been affected by that. So in that sense, yes, we are in it. But, of course, some of us have got a boat with, with leaks in it and others have got a perfectly, you know, serviceable yacht. yacht. Yeah. So, so will this be a moment of reckoning for our societies I would love to think so but you know we we get into a, a much much bigger conversation about what what that means because you know valerie's question is very pertinent but the answer currently it seems to me is that it is still um preparing kids for an industrial world which doesn't even exist anymore um so it's it's in that sense the old routine is not fit for purpose but but can it be changed that's the do, do we as individuals have the wherewithal to change it? it the, the way this was graphically driven home to me was I did some work in a, a friend of mine set up some schools in, in India, in New Delhi, and um, they're, they're, you know, they're an attempt to be progressive schools in a very, very traditional system. Mm. Um, and I, me and my wife do these parental engagement workshops and, and we get parents to be thinking about learning theories, frankly you know the things that schools mm-hmm. often say our oh, parents aren't interested in that no that's not true they are interested they just never get a chance to do it yeah. at the end of this session this guy came up to me and he said that was really great i really enjoyed everything you said he said and i i work as head of hr for google in india he said so i totally get it that that we we can't get people with the kind of skills with the empathy with the kind of um, leadership and collaborative skills that we need, but I came up through the traditional system and it worked very well for me. And frankly, that's that's what most of our politicians have experienced, and it's it's served them perfectly well. Hmm. So how do we how do we shift that mindset so that we're thinking about what is best for us as a society, and that that would require you know our addiction to growth to to come to an end and who knows maybe after cop 26 we'll 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 realize that there's more important things to life than you know profit but but i do think that it's it's it is driven by that so that those those structures that we see in most um industrialized societies those educational structures they're there for a reason and, it, and it's to sort out the sheep from the goats and to say who's going to go to the, the posh universities and who's not. Um, and, and so we have to tackle the whole system, which is kind of overwhelming for teachers. Yeah. I, and I, I get that. Yes.
1: Yeah, I get this sense. David, I'd love just to ask your, your wisdom on this, because I feel there is a, even in my own journey as an educator and, you know, many colleagues with whom I've worked, there is this sense over time of a fading agency or almost a learned helplessness. And I wonder if it's, again, it's the features of the system that we've all inherited from that past paradigm. You know, like, you, then you have, a of, well, what is a system, you know, and then you have go down that road. So there's, and yet, you know, when you talk about these these lighthouses of practice, you know, the lighthouse is out in the elements, you know, it's getting battered by the wind, you know, it's there to show us the way. But, you know, it's it's hard to be a lighthouse, I think, you know, so how do, we, how do we all understand our own agency uh, to be agents of change? Because I, I do wonder about the leaders that are doing this within the system, within the constraints, but finding a way forward all the same. And they realize that they are effectively the system itself observing and reinforcing itself. And so if we all change our practice, I mean, and this is what we saw. We saw the system change because – we all went to hybrid learning because it was emergency teaching. We had to, and so we saw that lasting change. It wasn't an externally driven initiative or digital transformation project. It was just required, and teachers, I think, did phenomenally well under the circumstances. Um, what, what reflections do you have? You've been doing this work for a long time. You know how this seems to be a mindset question to me. Like, how do we actually create or enable the emergence of an abundance mindset as opposed to that scarcity mindset.
0: Yeah. Let, let me come at it from a slightly different angle, Luca, because one of the the things that I say when I, when I'm giving talks and I'm, and I'm talking about the power of us and, and this drive to, to organize mm. and, and I sometimes give quite um, frivolous uh, what, what could be seen as frivolous examples. So let's take Ikea hackers. Uh, have you come across Ikea hackers?
1: No, no not many
0: people have. But, but actually, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's at least 100,000 people in, in various parts of the world. But it was right. set up by a Malaysian woman. And the concept is, instead of following those instructions, that IKEA spend a fortune making sure that, you know, they fail-safe, and you're going to be able to assemble it, and one piece of IKEA furniture is going to look <laughs> identical. Well, these people just throw all that away, and they say, well, what can we do with this? And then they take photographs, and they put it up, and they, they show their designs, and they share it. Well, IKEA got to hear about this and sent them a cease and desist letter and said you can't do this. And they said, why? Are you kidding. They said, well, because we spent a lot of money making sure that it's assembled in the correct way, and now you're you're messing that up. So they said, okay, you know. But they said, bear bear in mind that we could we could do this with anybody's furniture. So do you want us to go to one of your rivals? Fortunately, they 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 had a pause and came back to them and said, okay. We won't send you the cease and desist letter, but maybe maybe we'll allow you to do this and maybe we'll give you a little part of our website where you crazy people can do all this. And they've now brought out their first range of IKEA hackable furniture.
1: Uh, so interesting. What I
0: say to people is when it comes to the thing that I kind of call people powered innovation, you've got a number of choices as a as a whether it's an organization or a or a government, you can You can recognize it and try and work with it that's that's my preferred option you you can try and stop it like ikea tried to do but but you're just shooting yourself in the foot because these people will not be stopped you know biohackers are perfectly prepared to risk their life changing their dna and then you know video the whole thing and put it up on youtube so a government edict isn't going to stop that yeah Uh, Or you can can try and ignore it. And that's what a lot of people do. And that's fatal because these people are not going to go away. And there are times I wonder, you know, during the pandemic, there was a massive upsurge again in in homeschooling. But I think all of the things that you talked about that as bureaucracies we, we responded to, like developing the technology, so did the homeschoolers. So did the, the, the kids in tutoria all around the world who are doing peer-to-peer learning at yeah. scale. So the young people themselves are getting much cleverer at this and much better networked. So pretty soon, and I, 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 I would speculate within maybe a decade, I think we will, we will see, and it'll be fascinating to see this happen. We will see some young people who say, actually, you don't need to go to school. Because we, as a self-help community, we can learn. We can learn from each other. Hmm. And th- there's a there's a school that I worked with. Um, I, I ran a project called Learning Futures uh, ages ago, about twelve years ago. And they are a kind of hybrid model where the local school said to the homeschoolers, "Why why don't we put you on our rolls so that then you know we get the money, which we'll give to you. All you have to do is." come in occasionally and we'll do some stuff together. But but by and large, we'll give you some premises and you can you can continue to do the homeschooling. And it is it, it's a classic case of the power of us, even though it's 15 mm. years old. Um, but I think we're, we'll start seeing more of that. So you could say then, you know, are we just going to ignore that? That that growing movement of people, I, I think it would be a really big mistake. I certainly don't think you can try and legislate it out of existence, but I, I don't think it, it, it would work. So I, 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 you know, my hope is that our um, governments and the bureaucracies are not so um, so inured to to these changes that are going on that 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 yeah. they don't want to have a conversation about it, and we see this in 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 some of the more I, I think sophisticated countries where they say let's let's get a you know a diversity of models because there isn't just one size fits all fits nobody. Um, mm. You know one of the schools that I I write about in the book is New Road School in in Santa Monica, which you know for an independent school is remarkable because it gives away almost forty percent of its fee income to uh, enable kids from you know Compton and Watts and the really deprived parts of California to to come to the school, one of whom happened to be Amanda Bowman, you know, so oh, wow. you that incredible talent. Oh, yeah. um, and, and it's a wonderful school. You would love it, Luca, because it's the kind That's of school true. where you, you go to find out who you are as a person. It's, it's, and as a result, oh, wow. it, it's, it gets this amazing mix of, uh, you know, kids with who are on the spectrum. It's I think 40% of the kids uh, have got some form of autism um, it has film directors' kids. The Steven Spielberg Theater is there because Spielberg sent his kids there. But it's also got you know kids who are who are going home and, and are experiencing food poverty. And it has built this um, petri dish of what the American experiment was supposed to be about: can we all get along, and and can schools become the communities? And that, to me. Brings us back to the pandemic because I think there is an opportunity. When I'm when I'm in my more optimistic frame of mind, I think it's an opportunity for schools to help redefine themselves yes. by becoming the centres of a rejuvenated community. And I, you know, I, I I know you guys have had a very different pandemic experience in some ways, although you still have suffered, um you know, job losses and and. Uh, some of the problems that we've got in this country but we've we've got over here we've got you know inner city areas that are just desperate everything's closed wow. down and it it's going to take a lot of fixing and i just think this is the moment this is the moment for schools to step up and say we 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 don't need to just go begging to the government there are things that we could do you know mm. we don't have to allow the government, the local government, to close the library because they've got no money. We could do it. We could run it on a volunteer basis. You know, I just mm-hmm. think this is a great opportunity for schools to say we are relevant still because we are at the heart of our community. Yeah. It's a big shift, but, so but you said, it's possible.
1: You said something then about, and uh, you were talking about, uh, this is the place you go to find out who you really are. Yeah. i mean that's a pretty good articulation of what a school might be for is you Generally. know rather than here's what you know and here's what you need to do with what you know you know and i mean i support i support that you know experiential learning but this piece around identity i think or cap- core capabilities um which serve us through life and actually we we attach to and our ability to let go of a previous state and then transition into another one you know the idea of workforce SHIFT example and some of the Foundation for Young Australians work, you know, that has been done down here. Um, I have two final questions for you. I mean, I've got about 20, but I'll, I'll stick to two. The first <laughs> is, you know, if we're having this conversation in 10 years time, you've spoken a bit about this, you know, what you call people-powered innovation and the idea of, you know, collectives and these new models that are emergent, um, which in some ways is invention, but also remembering, you know, coming back to perhaps before we got lost. Uh, what do you think the major trends and themes will be if we're having this conversation in 10 years' time? And perhaps we've got the optimistic look and David here. You know, we've, we've seen <laughs> some kind of significant shifts, not just in the school structure, but actually in societal structure and perhaps even you know, ontology, like what the values of a society might be.
0: Yeah, wow. That's a big question. Well, the first thing is if we're having this conversation in 10 years time, I'll be very happy because that means I'm still here. So (laughs) that's the first thing. The second though, I think is if we're having this conversation in 10 years time and we really have done nothing about the climate emergency, then we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. And we we are leaving, you know, at, at times I find it incredible that the the crisis of self harm and attempted suicide that we're seeing in our young people around the world yeah. is not being addressed. It's not being taken seriously. I uh, in July, my wife and I we we had a little break. We were allowed. It was during the periods between two lockdowns, and we went up and stayed at a, a really nice pub in North Yorkshire. And the, the following morning we came out, and there was a we came across a, a young girl trying to hang herself, and it was it was Good really. Estate. It's stressing, and you know we talked uh, uh, around and we 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 spent the, the day with her really, but but what what was really striking, Luca, is that when I came home, I started telling a few friends, and they'd all had a similar kind of experience. There was a mm. young person that did, was trying to throw themselves off a bridge or some something, and we really have to take this seriously because yeah. they're not stupid. They look at the the way the climate is is. Is going down the Swanee and they just think, well, w- what kind of future am I gonna have? And even if the climate is okay, then what will it mean in terms of you know job security, pension, all mm. the things that you know my my generation took for granted? And I and I said, I think in Open that, you know, my generation had the party and, and these these young people have got the hangover. And yeah. I I I'm in awe of their ability to to be without rancor and to be without resentment. Um, I, and, and I am also in awe of their capacity for um, innovation and and what I would call social enterprise. Mm. You know, one of the things about writing the book means that it, these these young people kind of make themselves known to me. And, and, and I came across a girl in Bogota, she's 15, called Sophia Leal. And she's doing some amazing things. She, she has has built this... Um, emergency housing. It's like an igloo, but it's made of of carbon fibre, which can house a family of four during um, a natural disaster. And she's now taking this to production stage. She's won a university, Mm. national university competition in Colombia. And and it it used to be that they were the exceptions, these kids. But I see so many of them now, and I'm sure you do in your work. I just think if in 10 years' time we're having this conversation, I would hope that we're saying... You know when we got out of their way and just
1: mm. let
0: them determine what kind of world they wanted, and and actually trusted their good judgment and trusted their high moral values, that was that was the best thing we did. But so long as we keep them kind of tied down, Contained. and tethered down, yeah. then then yeah. things aren't gonna gonna end well. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a very pessimistic note to, to start, end <laughs> because I do think that actually what they will do. Is they will create their own democratic system. I, I firmly believe that that will happen. They they don't believe, and I don't blame them. They don't believe in the current system of representative democracy, yeah. and all all they need now is and there's some people like Don Tapscott who's putting money in to help them do this. But all they really need is a forum where they can come and reinvent how mm. the democratic system should be. And I don't think that that's too far away. And when that happens, then, you know, there'll be like those communities in quartzite you know, who, who just set up camp and they just create their own society. and And I wouldn't blame them for doing that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I right. want to
0: join them. I want to go there. You know, I'm, that... I'm, the, I'm the guy who, who always wants to go up to Findhorn in Scotland. You know, we used to laugh at those people because they were saying, that, you know, the, 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 we're, we're trashing the earth and we've got to set up our own community. Now we look at them and they're, they're the smart guys.
1: Yeah. It's funny. It's You know, when you think about what Burning Man has done for festivals and what blockchain has done for financial markets, you know, you wonder about what is, what's the kind of humanics, what's the human blockchain that can upon which things can be built i'm just
0: well i, I can give you definitely. a very specific example i know we're running out of time but let me just That's quickly because right. it's 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 featured in the book one of the organizations that are featured is called repowering uh and they're based in london but they are now actually um working in other countries but they are a kind of community they're a cooperative not-for-profit there's community uh, energy generation uh, initiative And it's a beautiful circular model. So they go into these deprived, what what Americans would call social projects. We call them council house estates or or blocks of apartments. And they teach young people how to build solar panels. And then they put the solar panels up on the roofs of these houses, which then generates the electricity. So they they become um, self-sufficient in terms of energy. But they're also training these young people to have the skills. But here's the thing. A a number of these young people said, well, this isn't enough. This is good, but it's not enough because I've got a cousin uh, who's like four miles away. If I produce excess energy, if I'm in surplus, why can't I gift my energy to them? Mm. And so they're they're now working with a couple of universities. They're using blockchain technology to create the world's first peer-to-peer energy trading platform. Nice. That's that's what I mean about the power of us.
1: That's fantastic. Oh, oh David, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you, and um, we've covered some ground. Um, yes, we have. Been a delight as well. I, I would love you to leave us with some parting words. What's what's a take home message that you want to share with our listener community?
0: Oh wow. Uh, well, for for educators, I think we we have to we have to recognize that what 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 might have worked for us although frankly i'm not one of those people i hate at school with passion but but what worked for for a lot of us doesn't necessarily work for for the world as it is now and that we need some bravery we need compassion um the next 10 years are going to be difficult and if we judge it purely on you know the old metrics we we will have missed a, a great opportunity we've got it an opportunity now to create some new metrics what really matters in when it comes to valuing our young people's talents and creativity and, and and character what what really matters and now's the opportunity we will never get a better opportunity than than this time now because once things do start the Go back to some to some level of uh, how they were, then it'll it'll we'll just go back to the same old same old. So let's let's seize the day.
1: David Price, a delight to have you on the Learning Future podcast. Thank you for what you do.
0: Thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. Great way to start my day and end yours. <laughs> Fantastic.
1: Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about
0: our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.